taking your seats and we prepare to share together. Uh, I want to pause and beg your indulgence for a moment to just commend Southeast Raleigh Table for the great expression of hospitality and a warmth that I have experienced since being here and in the same community of service and of humility and uh, of love. I just said, why don't you give yourselves a hand for such a wonderful, wonderful congregation that you are. I haven't had a chance to meet many of you, but my name is Cleve Tinsley, and I have the honor of sharing with you briefly this morning as a guest and as a friend. Now, Lisa did tell me that it was my responsibility to introduce myself, um, but I've never been really good at introducing myself, so I'll just say I am a friend, one who serves in the sense of humility and compassion and service and community with you on this morning. I also want to thank you for the great risk you take to try to make space for particularity to show up even while we strive for universality. There is a great call and commission we all have to try to make our way plain, to make sure that unity is our goal. But during this time, a time of black history, it's a time where our particularities are looking up, the experiences of a particular people and how they might shape our common struggle for humanity and love. And also on today, I have some brief words to share as it relates uh, to that theme. Our reading for the day comes both from the Hebrew Bible and also the Christian Testament. Our Hebrew Bible will be Zechariah chapter 11, verses 4 through 5 and 7. And I'll also accompany this with a Christian Testament reading from Matthew 25 verses 31 through 40. First Zechariah, thus said the Lord, the Lord my God, be a shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them kill them and go unpunished, and those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, for I am become rich. And those who are their own shepherds have no pity on them. So on behalf of the sheep merchant, Zechariah says, I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Unity, and I tended to the sheep. Matthew 25, the words of Jesus, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of his angels with him, then he will seat on the throne of glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry, you gave me food. For when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. When I was naked, you gave me clothing. When I was sick, you took care of me. In prison, you visited me. Then the righteous will answer to him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty? gave you something to drink and when was it 
that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say unto you, just as you did for one of the least of these, of the members of my family, you did also unto me. For the time I have tonight, I'd like to reflect from the theme, Making Black Lives Matter, or alternatively, this title will be on the subject of shepherds, sheep, and goats. Again, Making Black Lives Matter, or on shepherds, sheep, and goats. No doubt my reflections this morning come from 16 years of grappling with the nature of blackness and nothingness. That is, grappling with the category of being, which has at times been both overwhelming, but also a robust site of alienation, of creativity, of revolution, and of what one might say in this context, a site also that I've seen where radical grace has taken place. Blackness then, at least, or how I'd like to portray it with you this morning, is much more than any one perceived fleshly reality of people of darker hue. More it is an experience and a fugitive mystery. It is a great paradox wherein which there is a mix of both divine power and compassion that emerges from unenviable lament and also the resilience of a people who have both been surviving and thriving from life behind a veil. But this confounding characterization of blackness I've just laid out is something about which the best of every narrative tradition has much to say about, be they traditions of the prophetic, the poetic, or otherwise. I believe the best of all of our moral traditions have something to say to illuminate the paradox of nothingness, the paradox of blackness, the paradox of being on the other side. And the biblical witness, of course, shares in this as a great resource here. And so if you will, for me this moment, we'll think from this trope a bit more. Because maybe on different time terms, it's what the Apostle Paul might have had in mind when he exclaimed, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong, the lowly and despised things of this world, the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And if we are to think of blackness then as this thing that might nullify, maybe it's something more. And contrary to what we've seen recently in the recent democratic debates, an anti-blackness then is something that is irreducible to the political grammar of any type of racism. The struggle then to make black lives matter, as I theme it, is a struggle, a contestation as a various sites of power, of the rule of law, of tradition and culture. In short, it is a struggle to care for and to struggle for the life and dignity of a people who live in worlds that seek to stifle, stifle out their life chances at best or worse, snuff out their life altogether. Yet one might ask a question, what did all this talk of blackness have to do with the life of the church more generally, and specifically with the call of Southeast Raleigh this morning. And as a response to such a question, I'd like to suggest that making black lives matter is not just about a call to action, but it might also be a pronouncement of both judgment and hope. In view of our God's faithful activity in this world, 
Maybe it's a challenge to all of us who have the hearts and hands of God to explore goodwill in this world, to look at things from a different way. Maybe it's our responsibility to carve out a kingdom, an existence, where before we can really say that all lives do matter, we've made sure that the lives of those who have been most pressed upon in this life has come to the center of our view. But if you'd allow for a moment your imagination to skip back and forth with me through several millennia, from roughly about the 6th century BCE to now, I think profound analogies can be brought to bear on the task of those of us who have been called by humility to a life of service and community. For what I see in this great priestly prophetic tradition are several stirring implications that I think we can lift and receive insight from today. Now mind you here, I am a black Baptist preacher. Now I said three points, but in the time allotted this morning, I may only get to one. But it'll be one strong point, I promise you. <laughs> the first thing I think we see in this prophetic priestly tradition is that a call to make black lives matter is a summons to all of us to care for those who, like the prophet Zechariah says, are doomed to death. This is not just a physical death, although Second Zechariah certainly lends itself to this interpretation. But maybe it refers more to those who are dealing with death-dealing circumstances every day. It is a likewise social death right now. Listen again to Zechariah's where Thus said the Lord my God, be a shepherd of the flock of those doomed to slaughter. They are killed by those who buy them, and those who kill them go unpunished. They are sold, and those who sell them say, Blessed am I, for I have become rich, and their shepherds have no pity on them. Recently, I accepted appointment to think more about a devastated black community on the island of Galveston. And me and my friend began to have a conversation, and he asked me pointedly, Cleve, why? Why now? You just graduated. You have access to the elite institutions now. Why not just get you a book and read? Move somewhere <laughs> and think about it out loud. But in further conversation, I couldn't help but at least go scope it out. And I was taken on a journey to a church that happens to be across the street where they say at least the Emancipation Proclamation in 1865 was first exclaimed to a bunch of Galveston slaves. I further went to two other communities, two United Methodist churches, in fact, historically black congregation that now only see 10 to 12 people each day. Further, I've visited in several community meetings where there have been exclusionary disciplinary practices enacted against those who are black and brown. And in this context, I couldn't help but see and hear what I had just read in scripture. These folks have been doomed to death. And Cleve, if you don't care, then who will care? They have nothing to offer you. No, you won't make more money by advocating for these folks. They have nothing to give to you. No, you may not get more prestige. But the truth of the matter is, this is what the priestly prophetic tradition calls us to do. And so recently, me and my colleagues drove down to Galveston about six times now. And we just met with the community there. And we had some conversations both with the religious leaders there and the civic leaders. 
And we said to them now, well, there's a lot we can learn from what's going on right now. No longer are folks concerned about coming to the great mobilization efforts of the church. You see, the real church's work only happens partially on Sunday mornings and at our assemblies that we gather. But the people out there are wondering, what are you going to do to get the foot off my neck? And so me and my colleagues began thinking about this thing, and I couldn't start help but thinking about all the education I've got. And since it's Black History Month here, let me just point out a couple of social facts as it relates to black folk in this world. Doomed to death. It is a truth fact that blacks are an astounding 13 times below the median income of whites in this country. And in case you want some numbers, that's around about every $47,000 that a white person makes, blacks sit at around 3,500. And if we ought to look even further at the black working class among trade vocations, even there, we say when the rare instances where blacks can outperform whites, they still are subject to oppressive conditions. There are networks available. Whites dominate in trade, and so there's an excess of stuff that continues to grapple out their fears. Segregated networks of kin and friendship provides even poor working whites and blacks with unequal fitting. And there are underrepresentation of African Americans even among black entrepreneurship. Blacks who do manage to go out and receive clientele typically only serve black communities. And that's just partially of it. You can look in housing, access to health care, not to mention incarceration and enumeration counts. There is this larger narrative today that says there is great black social progress today, but even the sociologists have studied it. Becky Pettit, we've all familiar with the new Jim Crow rates. There is a problem with the incarceration rates in our country. And so anytime we are meeting out advantages to certain communities, we always got to recognize that there are some folk who are being excluded more than others. And so what does it mean for us to look out for those who are sick, those who have been incarcerated, those who may not have what we have? Sometimes we have to have a different gaze. Maybe it's a call for us to look at those who don't have health insurance now. Maybe it's a time for us to look out for the Philippine immigrant right now being held by ICE in Georgia. Her son is a first-generation grad student at Yale, and here she is locked up for three months. It's time for us to change our perspective a bit. And sometimes we like to laugh at it. Why don't we just all work on our own bootstraps, work hard, do what it takes. America has created this great equal playing field. Well, I think if we just look at the most successful in this world, we can see that it's not true. I partially kid with my friends sometimes and say to them, you know, there is a big difference, right? Jay-Z and Beyonce are celebrated artists, but they will never outsell Adele and Eminem. And I like both of them, don't get me wrong, but there's a difference in what happens and how we sing about it. And I say this partially kidding, but I oftentimes run across people all the time say, Cleve, what does it matter? Why should we strive so hard to make sure everybody is looked upon? But somewhere I read, we should not esteem those who are already of high position, but maybe it's the low position folk that we should sit on the front row. And I even disagree sometimes with the construction of it all, y'all. 
It's not so much that folks who we deem to be lower are really lower. It's because our society have gotten it backwards. Maybe God dwells among the places that we tend to overlook. But that's just one insight I think we can raise from this pa these passages. We're called to make Black Lives Matter. It's also more internally a call for us to give an account for where we stand in the struggle for mercy and justice. Now here, I'm raising an issue about moral courage here. Well, if we read these passages closely, we see that those of us who dare stand to teach or to preach seem to be held higher to a higher standard. But it just doesn't apply to folks who dare to stand before you. You who sit in the pulpit today, are you going to be welcomed into the assembly? Or are you persons who will be described as goats? Now, this strong language is, is kind of strong here. But I just got to admit to you, when I read the passage, I can't help but read these passages in a strong way. Zechariah says it again, Oh, my worthless shepherd, those of you who desert the flock, may the sword strike your arm and your right eye, and may your left arm be completely withered. May your right eye be utterly blinded. And Jesus again says, Depart from me, you evildoers. For I never knew you, or is it rather that they never really knew the mission and vision of Jesus? You see, we can't be surprised sometimes when folks want to leave the community of faith when they've never seen an enactment. They've never seen the vision of God that we seem to proclaim. They come every day and we tell them to sing the right songs. We tell them to wear the right clothes. But every now and then, every election cycle especially, those that we tend to esteem don't represent their interest. And it's just like the marketplace that existed in Zechariah's time we have sold those that we're supposed to have solidarity with. And we are often venal. We're often easily bought off by the newest fad that comes around. What's your ambition? What's your professional striving? I'm often asked. But somewhere I'm reminded, just like the prophet Du Bois would say when talking about Manforth, my ambition is to meet oppression with integrity. My ambition is to meet weakness with decency. My ambition is to somehow be honest in a world that's full of lies. And if we're not careful, we run the same risk of being doomed to death. And we especially see this happening in my own communities. I'm not talking about here. I'm not from here. I'm talking about Galveston now. But I can't help but get upset every now and then when I see those of us who have been privileged, all of us in this room, in fact, the truth is we are not subject to the brunt of oppression in this country. We went to the best schools. We have the best pastors. We get to sit comfortably in this chair. Most of us drove to this place. I'm talking about the folk that got to take two buses to get somewhere. I'm talking about the folk who are subject to the cruelties of a tow truck towing their car, and they can't get it back for three or four months. So I'm not talking about us in this room, but I can't help but get upset when sometimes folk who are vulnerable to our doing will see us do stuff that's duplicitous, will see us do things that not only has implications for our life, but for their lives can very much put them on the end of destruction. And this doesn't just apply for those of us who have authority. This also applies to the people. If we are not careful, we have to be careful about what can happen and what can come of us. For we have been called to do something much better. It's not just about 
how good and pious we can look on Sundays. But it has to be how we can construct an outreach in such a way that goes beyond our walls. And there's much more I can say about this, but I'm almost out of time, so let me move on. Finally, and I want to conclude by just talking about this, not only is the call to making Black Lives Matter a call to change our perspective, it's not just about looking about how far you can get, but looking about those that you pass by every day on your way to church, those who have been doomed to death, those who have been doomed to destruction. It's also a call for you to live in to your own type of moral tenacity and courage. It's okay if you haven't been called to be a prophet. It's okay if you haven't been called to be radical and on the streets. But whatever you've been called to be, be that in public and in private. But finally, the call to make black lives matter is a call to both accept the responsibility we have as the priest and prophet tradition, but also a call to strengthen our siblings if we have able, been able to maintain some kind of faith. For somewhere I continue to see Zechariah say, I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will have compassion on those whom I choose, and I will reject those whom I will. The people of Ephraim shall be like warriors, and their hearts shall somehow be glad. And somewhere else I read that there is a river that make glad the city of God. Somewhere I read as well that Jesus, even hanging on a cross, was able to say to another person stretched out, at the end's width, that today you are welcome into my kingdom. And if we can't have a message of hope for somebody, then my question to you is why still exist? If we can't struggle to make this world better, even if we never see it in this lifetime, then why even participate? There's a reason why I almost left the church, y'all. I got tired of the duplicity. I got tired of learning how to say the right things and not making a difference outside when we leave. And I don't know what tomorrow holds for me anymore. People ask me all the time, Cleve, what are you? I say, I don't know. I'm just a man, a cishet black man, in fact, as Dr. put it, trying to figure out what this means as I try to create some kind of meaningful and content life for myself. And the more and more I think about it, all I can think about is my dear mother, who every now and then couldn't leave me much, but she left me a Bible. And in that Bible, she left the prayers of my great-grandmother and my grandmother. And they would say to me every now and then, I don't feel no ways tired. And sometimes when I get weak, I don't know what to say, I can pull back on that reserve and say, look, I don't feel no ways tired. And if we're not careful this morning, church, we'll have the tendency to burn up and leave this place and be irrelevant in this world. There is a way in which these pronouncements have gone throughout the ages, yes, God gave no other rainbow sign, but I heard that same prophet James Baldwin say again in a new way, no, no more water for us, but if we don't get it together, no more water but fire next time. Amen. You can hear a word...
and hold it at arm's length and never let the word seep into your bones. You can hear a word sometimes with your human ears and choose to close the ears of your heart and then never live the words with your lives. So I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. And to get still. Gracious God, you have offered us a word in due season. A word that causes our ears to tingle and our hearts to burn. But God, would our hearts communicate to our hands and our feet to move? So that tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday or Saturday or next Sunday, we wouldn't simply regurgitate what we have heard but that the world might see that the word has somehow taken root in us and our lives have bended toward the word. That we would not be like those who say, Lord, when did we see you shackled? Lord, when did we see you despairing? Lord, when did we see you struggling? Lord, when did we see you hurting? Lord, when did we see you naked? Lord, when did we see you incarcerated? That we would not be those people who have to ask the question, but that we would be the answer. That God, we show up where you come to us, Christ in disguise. Because the power of the word and Holy Spirit has not just circled around our ears or it's not just landed in our minds. It's not just consonants and vowels that have been given to us. But instead, the word has landed in our hearts that tomorrow we might be people who live out this strong word. That as we go from to and fro, people would say, oh, look at the people from Southeast Raleigh Table. They are the shepherds who have the staff called favor in unity. God, may it be so by the power of your word and your Holy Spirit that this word has not only simply landed upon our ears, but upon the ears of our hearts that we might live out these words beautifully in our lives. This we pray in your strong name. Amen.